we're aligned to actually help the communities that we all live in, where our families live in. We believe the best way to help those communities is by helping that local financial institution that's in that community whose own mission is to invest back into the community. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, everyone. David Wright here, live from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. This morning, I am joined by Lou Senko. Good morning, Lou. Good morning, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Lou, tell everyone about your current role and the company you're working with. Well, first of all, thanks, Dave, for inviting me on your podcast. My current role is a funny title, Chief Availability Officer, and we stole it from Salesforce, who kind of pioneered that role about a year and a half ago. I'm responsible for the customer experience at, at Q2. So it's, it's my team that deliver all the services from hosting, security, compliance, and support. We're the long tail of the service delivery of all the products and services to the end customer. Awesome. I'm actually going to the Salesforce World Tour today at uh, Javits Centers. Oh, there you go. Yeah, shout out to Salesforce. We'd like to start out the episode with one piece of actionable advice you might look to give our listeners today. You know, actionable advice, being an engineer by background, I, you know, I spent much of my career really trying to be competent at my job and thinking that competency would carry through. Being right wins the argument. Being right, people listen to you. Being right solves the problem. And I think as I've grown through my career, I realized that trust and building the relationships really become actually more important. And people can't listen to you and trust what you're saying and believe that you don't have a different motive until you have a relationship with them. And they kind of learn why they should be listening to you. And then they can hear you. And so I think I over-rotated on being correct and, and having the answers and thinking that that was enough to create the gravity of why people would want to listen to you. Now realizing I have to spend as much time being intentional about connecting with the people that I'm trying to learn from and, and, and influence. And often that's a two-way street in that I have to ask for their opinion and their help for then it to be reciprocal for them to bite me in with my opinion and my help on their, their. That's great advice. And I mean, that's 
how we operate as well. I mean, I always say we're in the business of creating 30 year relationships and, you know, we don't really try to sell. It's an interesting uh, dichotomy. We, we really, we look to build the relationship. We look to share our experience and then, you know, people learn to appreciate and trust us just as, as people. And then as opportunities present themselves, they want to learn from the experience that we garnered with other folks right. walking through the situation. So that, that's great advice. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you start out and how did you get to be the, the chief availability officer you are today? It's a Neanderthal path, so it's not a, I wish it was a straight line. I think people think success goes from here to there and you just work hard. But the reality is it's a, it's a message of all the twine to get to where I am. You know, I'm originally from northern Canada. You know, 80% of the Canadian population lives within an hour of the U.S. border. I'm 12 hours north. And so it snowed almost every month of the year and was uh, winter for at least nine months of that year. So grew up on the farm up there. To say we were poor is an understatement. Really wanted to change that in my life. And education was the way to do it. I got lucky. It was some uh, grants and some uh, scholarships that allowed me to go to the big city and go to big city schools. And I, I just happened to do well there and uh, had great classes, great instructors that, that really invested in me and my career. And that allowed me to then, as I graduated, to have companies looking to bring me on. So I, I was able to kind of choose companies from offers. And instead of taking one with a big name that looked like it was a great job, great company, I took one that was more growing and, and needed someone that was willing to kind of have an impact, but it was going to, all the opportunities were going to become dressed as work. And, uh, and so I picked that company. No one ever heard of it. No one knew. I had to explain what I did and what the company was to everybody, including my family. But it turned out to be the best choice ever because I was able to have a big impact. I was able to, there's a lot of ambiguity in the roles. And so, you know, there wasn't set ways to do things. So if you had an idea of how to do it, you got to try it. As long as you listened and tweaked it to be successful, you got to keep doing things. And so, it just allows you to do things that you hadn't done before, things maybe above your pay grade to go taste and try, and then build success where there wasn't success before in the company. So it just allows my career to kind of blossom and me to have more control over um, the next thing I did. You know, I'm a true believer that you're good at what you like and you like what you're good at. And so I certainly have a lot of blind spots and I'm only good at certain things. But if you can shape your job and your career to really leverage and highlight those things you're good at, then you're showing up as the best you can. And so it just worked out that I, I was able to kind of do the things I'm good at. And, and that kind of perpetuated me into leadership. Once I got to leadership, again, I'm very blessed. I, I've always had great teams and uh, never really understood the value of that until I realized that these people are smarter and better at their jobs than I can. So I can't do what they do. So my job becomes, you know, coffee, PowerPoint, and picking up the lunch check for them, making sure they're happy. And once in a while, giving them some advice. I can't solve their problem because they know more than I do, but I can give them kind of some perspective and they often have the answers. You just have to help them kind of unlock it with, and help them find it. And then uh, keep finding ways that we can lean across the aisle and help other groups and just keep expanding our influence in the company. So, you know, so I went from engineer in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, to moving 14 times as that company grew, 24 acquisitions later, I, I'm down in the U.S. and uh, we were acquired by a company in Austin, Texas. So talk about a kiss of fate there. That Austin's a beautiful place to live. Quality of life here is unbelievable. 
and uh, no snow. And so I'm, I could leave the snow behind. I grew up with that company 27 years. And then during one of the last mergers, the role really changed well from a builder role to a kind of an optimizer role. And I'm, those are the signs that I need to hand that off to an optimizer. I'm more of a builder. I went to the next thing. Spent some time at Michael Susan Dell Foundation as their uh, director of IT. That was a dream job, a beautiful building, beautiful mission. You're helping children. I mean, just everything you want. Not a lot of complex IT jobs to solve there. So it would be a good second career for me to come back and help there because it's really mission-driven. That's great. So then I joined Q2 about 10 years ago. And Q2 was, at that time, $44 million in revenue. It was an Inc. 500 company. We had about a million users. We had about 240 servers. I was the 13th person in IT. Today, 23 million users, 12,000 servers, 100,000 containers across 12 different environments. We're going to end this year around 580 million, 2,200 people in the in the company, and now there's 400 people in my team. So tremendous growth, tremendous building, a lot of excitement, a lot of work, a lot of stress, but it's all about building and moving forward. And that's just, if you're going to put your energy into something, that's a very positive way to put your energy. I love what you said about servant-based leadership. And it's so cool that you got to build a team from, you know, 12 people to 400 and ground them in that, that culture of, of showing up with your, clearly your values, right? Showing up as the same person I imagine you'd show up for your family as you would for your colleagues and your, your team. To be clear, I didn't build it. I got to, there was about 12 people that followed me from my last company and the last few companies that followed me here. So there's just a band of, of really talented people that I was blessed to kind of even know, and we just got along and so our work styles were, and then once they got in here, they built this, they built this team. And they really, when you anchor on these, these key talents and these key people, I, I'm a real believer that people work for people and, uh, they don't work for a company. And I've been in companies where that logo changed every year of what was on the door. So that, you know, you don't get married to that. But this core team of, of, of trust that you build with this leadership and, and you can disagree and you don't always have to have consensus, but you have commitment of whatever's decided, we're going to make that to be the best decision possible. And even though it was my idea and I didn't really agree with it at the time. But I agree with it now because we've talked about it. And team, um, that team really was the, the way that they've been able to extend their careers and extend their influence by adding people that work well with them into that group. And, and uh, it, it's been truly amazing just to be part of watching that organization evolve. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. And, and the fact that they followed you, though, is, is testament to your leadership. I also liked what you said about these team members oftentimes having the vision, if you will, for kind of overcoming challenges or guiding the organization, you know, so often as a consultancy, we'll walk into an enterprise organization, you know, 10,000 people, 15,000 people, you know, there are stakeholders within the organizations that know how to solve the challenges that we're being brought in to solve, right? So a big part of our role is, you know, similar to you kind of being an extension of the C-suite, you know, experts in, in organizational change management and really giving those folks a voice and then tying that message together so that we can bring that to the executive team in such a way that they can digest it and move forward, obviously give their input. But, you know, I love what you said about just kind of really enabling these, these team members. 
you know, David, what, how you said that is, it really, really resonates. It's all these different companies do different things, and technology is a big thing. We always think about technology because we're technologists at heart, and that's our training. That's what we work on. But your thoughts there on the organizational development and just how we think about bringing this organization together, it's a people business. At the end of the day, no matter what we're doing, it's a people business. And without the people, without the special people, we don't make anything special. So the technology we use is, is pretty leading edge, and we have some startups, and we have some really cool stuff. But anybody can get this. It's how we use it that makes it differentiating. It's what we do with it that makes it differentiating. And it's the people. At the end of the day, it's a talent game. And, and to your point there around that organization development, I was blessed at one point in my career, I took enterprise architecture. And people think that that's technology because I'm an engineer, and it's really not. It's about people and developing roles to fit uh, new needs within the company. And that has paid dividends for me over and over again because Turns out, even though I'm an engineer, they don't let me do any engineering anymore, and I don't really touch any software anymore, and I'm not allowed to build anything anymore. It's really about building an organization. So hiring well and running a great organization is kind of my job now. And to what you do, and you've seen some of the best companies around, how you've helped them, that is the secret sauce of how to hold all this together. Yeah, sometimes it's it's uh, an operational issue, and, and you need the operational inspiration to solve the issue. And then maybe the technology plays into that, but it's secondary to how the problem actually gets solved. And similarly with people, so often we'll come in when we're looking at customer experience, particularly with you know unified cloud communications environments, cloud contact center, uh, self-service, and, and that sort of thing that lead into a customer service department and the management of the department or the way that they're training their people or the, the upward mobility that they are or aren't, you know, providing that that's at the root of a lot of their, you know, lacking KPIs. And so right there, you know, yes, we want to implement technology to make their lives easier via knowledge management or workforce management or, or artificial intelligence, whatever it might be. But Sometimes it's the blocking and tackling and, and really inspiring those folks that makes the difference, especially, I mean, you mentioned kind of, I think you mentioned retention before, right? And, and retention and attrition are a huge issue right now in across industry, across department. I mean, it's crazy. When you think about that maturity capability curve that organizations kind of move up and they move up and they get more mature and they're more capable and how, how you start with a bunch of heroes, but nothing's defined and it's chaos and it's not very repeatable success. And then how you intentionally kind of move up that curve, you end up on the mature organization where you have fewer, smarter, more well-paid people with bigger impact doing things they want to do that, I mean, just working that intentionally up there. I mean, you obviously get the insights of what the end game looks like, where often you're in a company that probably doesn't know what that looks like. And you, you get to tell them what that looks like, but there's, there's a lot of kind of two steps forward, one step back as you kind of rework all this stuff. And to your point, technology plays a role, but that organizational development to match that roadmap is, is an important concept there. Great insights. What's one of the most important things you've learned in your, in your life, Lou, over the course of your career? And it can be personal, professional, or otherwise. And what was life like before learning it and, and life like after learning? Yeah, you know, it, it's a little bit on... Uh, Kind of what I already talked about around confidence, trusting, but to be very specific about it, I walk into a situation 
with a 12-step plan of how to make it better. And 12-step plan, okay, this is going to work. Here we go, step two, step three, step four. Very logical, very thoughtful. It's going to get to where we want to go. And I would skip over step one a lot. And step one is when I'm sitting across the table from the person, do we agree that we have a problem? And do we agree on what that problem is? And I would skip over that because I, I thought the problem was so obvious. Everyone knows what this problem is. It's right there in front of us. And so I spent all this time talking about how to fix the problem. And I would find I get to about step six and no one's really bought in. They're not, they're almost offended in some, some of my advice that they didn't ask for. And here it turns out that we didn't agree that there was a problem. In fact, they were very comfortable with the way that this was working. The problem's over there, or they're just personally connected to this. And so what they see as a problem is, is a problem of one on a scale of 10, not a problem of a scale of nine on a 10. They don't see how this is preventing them from moving forward or scaling or getting to the next run in the ladder. And so I would often really be a blunt hammer in some of these meetings where, where I'm here trying to solve problems that haven't gained the commitment that there is a problem to solve. And then that's where that competency trust then really shows up because I probably was right and I probably had the right answers, but I didn't spend enough time connecting with them for them to feel like there wasn't a manipulation in this advice, there wasn't some other motive in this advice, and I was truly trying to help with a problem. And uh, so I didn't gain any sort of in for them to even be able to hear what I was saying. And so I, I did that many times, and especially when I went from a company that I was around the same group for 27 years and jumped into a new company. Of course, I had a playbook for everything. I knew how to solve everything. And I probably didn't come across listening enough, probably didn't come across trying to understand why they do things this way here. And so I didn't make them feel special enough about they're different. And the reality is, I think we all fall into the trap of we're special and different. So whatever the normal rules are, don't really apply for us for all these reasons. And of course, that's not true. But if you don't give them their due notice that you're listening and looking for those things, then they, they're blocked because you don't understand them. And, and so your advice falls on the floor. And it should. I mean, it absolutely should. And so those are kind of just mistakes as, as a young man in new opportunities to excited to go solve problems, make it, make an impact and, and not slowing down enough to build the relationships first, get good intentions on the table first, and then, and then be trusted with some of the solutions. Any other um, challenges or failures that you've had over the period that are your biggest or one that stands out to you in this moment that you learned a lot from? You know, I've lots of failures, you know, and, and part of my role is we do such a fantastic job of answering customer questions, hosting their stuff, being secure. And those things can all just fall under the radar and become plumbing that people don't even realize how well it's going because when it's going good, it's not, you know, you don't think about it. And it's when it's bad that then all the focus comes when hosting falls over and the applications are down, when security has an incident and something leaks. When support gets backlogged and we're not able to respond in time, those kind of things, then it becomes about the problems. And so you always talk about the problems. You always have the focus on fixing the problems. And if you're not careful, you go from talking about the problem to talking about the next problem to talking about the next one because there is always the next problem. And so how do you fill those gaps between talking about problems with talking about the good and making sure that there's a balanced conversation and a balanced thing 
where you can gain the credibility of all the great things you're doing in, in between the problems, you know, there's going to be problems. And, and then you're not judged on being incompetent because the problem showed up. You're competent and problems show up and you're the right team to go fix the problem. And I find now my day, again, because they don't let me touch anything with my uh, engineering wise, my day now is really about narrative storytelling. And so getting good about telling a story around why we do things this way, what our roadmaps look like, how things were, how they are now, how, what they're going to be, and just, just be able to show some kind of thought leadership in some of the things that we're doing so that we get credit for all this planning and thinking and stuff, knowing that there's going to be missteps and problems along the way. But we know that, and we're ready for that, and we're all locked step to being what good looks like. We're all on the mission to get there and we all want that. So this is just a, a very intentional journey that isn't without problems, but we're the right team to handle those problems. So I've learned a little bit around trying to get really good at telling that story in ways that people can understand. You know, I get the curse and the benefit of I have 1,200 customers. Each one of them have a CIO, a CSO, and a, a support group, a risk and compliance team. So I have my peers over in these customers and they get to kind of judge how well I'm doing with their digital brand. And so that can be very technical conversations and there's different levels of sophistication. We have some, you know, we're 40% of the top 100 banks in the country. So I have some banks that's $150 billion under assets. And then we go all the way right down to the regional community financial institution that's 500 million under assets. So there's just a different level of capability with their IT departments in those groups. So I have to be able to talk to the VP of digital and I have to be able to talk to the marketing person and I have to be able to talk to technical people at different levels. And uh, just getting good at that and figuring out how to resonate with the people that they're asking this question, but really if I'm in their shoes, they meant to ask me this question. So how do I help them ask the questions that are meaningful? How do I show them maybe not thinking about, but our values of why they chose me, how to make them look good for being a customer of ours. And a lot of people, especially in IT, have a career building things their own. And so they totally get that. Picking a vendor to do it for them, that's kind of uncomfortable. And they don't take as much pride in that. But if I do it right, they can go by and articulate everything I'm doing as in they are doing it. And they chose us for doing that. And they look great because they picked a great company, great technology, doing cool things. And they can talk about it and be proud about that. And so it's this shift in how do I help them shift from doing it themselves to picking the right vendors and, and, and yet have an influence on me and, and being able to build a relationship with me because I am just an extension of them and their career and their team. Great answer, Doug. I, I love that. Uh, being that storyteller is so crucial. It's so crucial. That, yeah, that really resonates for me. So before we get into Q2 and kind of what you guys were up to, your vision for the organization, favorite book, either all time or recently or blog or literary piece that, that you'd want to recommend to our listeners? Again, I'm, I'm very blessed in that we, the management team does a, a quarterly book review. We pick a book and sometimes it's a, a trendy management topic. Sometimes it's about working on ourselves. Sometimes it's something way out of whack. You know, we've done everything from Amy Cutter's presence to I think one of our last books was Adam Grant's Think Again to uh, Strength Finders. The one that I'm reading right now, it's a good one, called The Power of Presence by Dan Jenkins. It's really about how pressure, the power of pressure, pressure is kind of this 
combination of important urgency and volume. And so how do you manage this? Go up for the moments where you've got to really hit a home run and make a difference in that. They go through all the professional things that you need to be thinking about and doing to diet and health, which is not something I'm really known for, to interviews with Olympic athletes and their coaches. And their coaches under a tremendous amount of pressure while the athlete performs, yet they can't do anything about it. And just all these dynamics around how to really nail the moments of pressure and look at them as opportunities to really shine. There's a lot of clarity, and especially in my world, we're, we're off doing a bunch of projects every day. Uh, we're not real firefighters because things run pretty well. But all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off and something big broke, and that's our moment to really show up and get it done. We earn our little badges when we, we do that well. And it's important that that happens once in a while. Otherwise, people forget the place can catch fire. And then it becomes more about what's the value of having this team on standby if we never use them. And so not that we hope to have an outage, not that we hope to have a, a, an incident, but when we do, boy, we better show up and really make, make hit it home. So The Power of Pressure is, uh, is the latest, latest book. I like it. And I love that you guys have a quarterly uh, you know, book review. That's really cool. We get sucked into working in the business so much that we have to be very kind of intentional to take a day. We read the book, we come together, we spend the morning thinking about how this book can apply to our day. And we talk about it and there's, sometimes we just review the book. Sometimes there's practical things that we try. And then uh, we spend the afternoon then on kind of topical things about what's on top of our mind for the organization as a whole, because all the leaders are kind of different parts of the organization. So, But it gives us time to work on the business instead of in the business. And, and if we don't set that time aside, our schedules are just full of working in the business. Your kind of trajectory and, and your, your come from now as this you know, chief executive at this organization reminds me of this book, uh, From Strength to Strength, that I, I recently read. It's by Arthur Brooks, you know, brilliant dude. And he talks about basically how that we have like these two different curves. We have this curve as a, and we're striving, you know, for example, as you're an engineer, you're striving for greatness, you're delivering. And then as we get older, if we keep trying to strive in that direction, like obviously, like you said, you have these brilliant young minds coming into the picture. They know all the latest technologies. So stepping into a role of now being this leader, this educator, where you can draw from invaluable experience that they don't have and really guide them on this path. I imagine, you know, I'm not quite there yet. Well, I am in a certain sense, but is very fulfilling, right? Because, I mean, you seem like a, a fulfilled man to me. That's my experience. You hit it on the head. My favorite role is mentor. And I actually mentor at the local high school. They have a business incubator class where the teams build build a thing. They, they build a go-to-market plan. They create a front of a shark tank of local business people and they put up their own money and they win a, a scholarship to go take this thing and go do something with it. And if, if they're selected, the top two teams didn't go on to nationals, and, but, but the top two teams then are invited back next year for the course where they actually then go start their company and start uh, go for patents and build the marketing plan and go try to do something with this. And, you know, sometimes there's some legs on this stuff. Sometimes there isn't. But mentoring them through that process is really cool. I also a mentor for the local Macomb School of Business. They have undergraduate class that, and they're trying to do deep dives into some key kind of narrow points in the economy and impacts to that. And 
And so you're looking at even brighter mindset just about to enter the workforce. And they're really kind of exploring all the things and all the possibilities. And it's just exciting to be around. And then at being the old guy at work now and, and a, a team underneath me that because we're grown, we're always hiring more every year. So more and more of the company is new to the company every year. You just mentorship is really the way to coach. I find a way to kind of coach. I'm not really good at that first part of the situational leadership where you're just telling people what to do. And the last part where you're delegating it all away, but the middle parts where you're coaching and sometimes you're in the driver's seat explaining how to do it. And sometimes you're sitting in the passenger seat and offering some advice, but that is where I get my batteries recharged as they're working through it. And we're finding new successes together and, and uh, we're seeing the results of effort. And I really enjoy that part of mentoring. Let's talk a little bit about B2. Tell us a little bit more about what you guys are up to and what your vision for the organization is as the, the chief availability officer. B2 is, first of all, it's a mission-driven company. And that sounds funny, but when you work for a company that is mission-driven, it really adds another layer of why you're coming to work. People come to work here not to buy the CEO his third boat. We come to work here because we're aligned to actually help the communities that we all live in, where our families live in, where our, we believe the best way to help those communities is by helping that local financial institution that's in that community whose own mission is to invest back into the community. So we don't want to see a day where there's just five big banks that get to decide who gets a home loan, who can start a business, who can go back to school. We really believe in this fostered community the community puts its money in this institution. This institution uses that money to invest back into the community. That, and it doesn't go overseas and make investments overseas. That is what we're about. And we do it. We have thousands and thousands of volunteer hours that we track. The employees raise money, give money, donations. We're all over the place here in our local communities trying to help out. And you too, because we're the brand under brands, I'll talk more about that in a second. We are also on a stadium here in Austin, Q2 Stadium, which is the Austin FC, the MLS uh, soccer group. But we won that award, not because, I mean, we there's AWS, there's Google, there's Microsoft, there's Oracle, there's, there's big companies here that could easily pay more than we can pay. But we won that because of our connections to the local community and trying to really, that is an important part of this brand and what the local professional soccer team wants to be part of. They want to be part of the community. So what Q2 does, though, is we're between 23 million users and about 1,200 financial institutions, banks, and they access their accounts on these credit unions and banks. We uh, move about $2 trillion a year with these 23 million users. We also have part of the company that is underneath some of the big fintech brands that are great at raising money, but they don't know what to do with it once they have it. So they need a bank to partner with them to go then do something with the money. People like Credit Karma, Acorns, Betterment, Money Lion, these folks have created fantastic apps. They've got customer eyeballs, customers give them money, and then we work with them to get that money into a banking core systems and then to get it into a bank or credit unit who's good at making money with money. So these guys are great at getting customers. These guys are great at making money with money. And so that's a marriage made in heaven. You know, five years ago, the fintechs thought they were going to put the banks out of business and it was going to be a war. Turns out it's a real, it's a marriage made in heaven. They need each other to do this. My team specifically, we run a very mature distributed cloud. So we have a private cloud with active active data centers, hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment in these active active data centers. 
And then we have uh, multiple public cloud vendors, AWS and Azure, and then we can pick a workload and with just a couple lines of change the code, we can deploy this workload across any one of these 12 environments. The key for us then is to wrap that all under one sort of security and one sort of compliance posture that our end customer doesn't care where the pieces come. They're all assembled into this kind of seamless end user experience. And they don't have to worry about security or compliance because, again, they're banks, so they, they're heavily regulated, that I have one compliance posture, one security posture across those malls. So they don't care where it is. I don't care where it is. We get to place them where the elasticity or the performance or the cost or the security or the resiliency, wherever the best place to put the workload is, is where I can put it. And then we just weave it together and deliver it. So it's a very mature way of putting all these Lego blocks that we have with public and private clouds and all the different vendors together into one thing that we can just leverage kind of the best of, of what they bring to the table. Yeah, that's, that's impressive. There's not a lot, there's not a ton of companies that are at that point, you know, with that posture, with that structure already. So kudos to you and your team. So, you know, that being the case, what are some of the key initiatives you guys are focused on now? It's really all scaling, right? We are planning to be a billion dollar company in four years. So if you think about 18 years to get to this size, now we got four years to double it. Growing 30% when you're 40 million is one problem. Growing 30% when you're 500 million is a different problem. And so kind of a lot of things that got us here aren't the same things that are going to get us there. And so we are having to rethink and, and everything from the talent to the organizational structure to the ways we go to market to the products that we're coming up with. It's a very different scale. And so how to scale technically for new heights and new volumes and new things to scale the organization to be able to handle this to scaling financially. You know, when we were a startup, there was a little bit more of a blank check to go kind of solve problems. Today, you know, we've got to make money. And so, and we've got to improve the margin. We've got to improve it, but all the way as we also scale. So, you know, I don't get to pick just two. I have to do the, the hard job of all three of those things. And so almost every initiative we have is trying to improve the customer experience while improving the scale, while also improving the margin. And then, you know, this all starts with the employee experience. So it starts employee experience first, and then these other things, right? Because at the end of the day, the employees aren't happy they're not doing their best work, that it's reflected by the customers, and I'm not going to get anywhere where I need to be. So the employee's experience, then the customer experience, and then scaling somehow and all that stuff. What are some of the biggest challenges you and your team are facing right now? You know, almost all those things all have their challenges. I think the right. employee, it's a challenging market to hire in. And I think we have a lot of Q2 knowledge that people have gained over the years. As we're growing, we're hiring like crazy. I, I, I'll use my support group as an example. 60% of my support team has been hired since COVID. And so, and they've been hired wherever we can find them. So they don't have to be in a local area for us. Um, but they haven't met their, their partners. They haven't met their boss. They haven't really got a taste of the culture of what it was. And when you think about support, a lot of that times you're solving a problem and some experts overhearing you can kind of lean over and help you, or you can just lean over to the desk next to you and ask the question. And so a lot of that knowledge sharing that happens more fluidly when you're all working together in a place, that's all been lost as we've kind of moved to working out of our bedrooms and over Zoom. And so it's really pushed me to figure out better ways to onboard and up-level the people and training in this kind of, and as we're accelerating the heart and, and the problem's only getting bigger. 
I have added people to the company over the last six months here in 2022. So we've, we've had attrition like everyone, but we've been able to backfill those and actually add more roles. But what I've lost is a tenure. So, you know, you lose 60 people, you've replaced 60 people, you've hired another 20 people, but I've lost 130 years of tenure. That is hard to replace. And so that I think is our biggest challenge is not, you know, Q2's got a great brand. A lot of our employees recommend an employee to come work for us. We get kind of, we get a lot of referral hiring, which is, I think, great. But how do we get them to a point where the technologies get more sophisticated, customers get more sophisticated, everything keeps moving up faster? How do we get people ramped up quickly enough to be of value to our customers and and our products? And then how do we keep them at that pace as we keep growing? So we don't outstrip them in our high growth and then have to replace them in two years because all the technologies are gone. And it's this trajectory of learning. How do you really embed that into the organization? That I think is my biggest challenge. Yeah. And then there's obviously a financial aspect of attrition that we're working through with a lot of clients. I mean, it could end up costing, you know, when you look at training and all the other expenses, millions of dollars, depending on the size of the organization. It's great that you guys are working to address that. I hear about it really almost every day. The hybrid cloud environment you've constructed is incredibly impressive. I imagine you guys have, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of of API security, but how are you guys leveraging innovative technologies to support the vision that you described earlier? A lot of what we do is framework and tried true ways to do things. I think we've been able to kind of add some secret sauce that makes it differentiating. We have a couple of local startups that are part of our portfolio of services that we add and they give us new capabilities that we couldn't, you know, we didn't even think about and we would be hard to build, right? It's not our expertise. One is in the security angle where at the end of the day, all these layers, security, all the perimeter layers of security, all the endpoint hardenings that we do, all the anomaly detection we look for is so that we don't have to know what it is. We just have to know it's, it's not normal and we freak out and, and think it's bad. At the end of all these you know, design-to-fail type angles that we've built into the security posture, at the last mile, we actually use the data as part of the security posture. And so we actually take sensitive data out of the database, place it with tokens. We take that data, we encode it. So we convert it to new data, chop it up into bits, encode it two more times, and then drop it into private blockchain. And so if you look at my database, there's no sensitive data. If you look in the blockchain, if you can figure out how to get into a blockchain, that's going to be probably more common in the future. But if you get in there, the data's not there either. It's been chopped up and converted and, and scattered. And so it's reassembled real time at wire speed back into the application. So the only place that that data exists is in memory in the application. It's never stored. So that gives me this kind of a little bit more comfort around kind of the Equifax penetration or the Capital One penetration where people got into the environment and then moved lottery, got to data and took data. And even if it was encrypted, they still took the source data. It's just covered in math. They can't read it right now, but the source data left the building. I don't have that. And even if one of my own employees who has access to the data, you know, a third of the breaches last year were from an insider. Half of those were by accident. They were just doing their job and build something, right? But the other half wasn't by accident, right? It was intentional. So even people that have access to the stuff, it's just tokens. There's nothing. You have to actually operate the application to put it all back together. Um, so that's one kind of cool technology that really is a differentiator right now in our market. You know, in five years, everyone's going to have it, but you know, we have it now. And, and so we're, I think another cool technology is as we think about 
how to really personalize the customer experience in our products. Every one of our customers wants to white glove the experience for their end user. And to do that for 23 million people differently is, is hard at scale. But we have a way to track everything that they do within the platform. Every field they touch, every click, every value, every, everything they do, and why they do it, how they do it. And then that goes through a bunch of machine learning around trying to develop patterns, how they use our application. Then we have another massive database that tracks all the spend. And so if you think about, we try to then infer rates about this person. Do they have kids in college? Do they have a mortgage? Are they up for maybe a new car? What would they do with their money? Do they like local restaurants? So there's a bunch of machine learning on all this spend. And so when you bring the behaviors and traits together, then we can personalize the experience. So when you log into the application, you're seeing the different menus and different things that are more personalized to you than, than when I log in. And then the financial institution can sit there behind a, a dashboard and they can see kind of what, where I am in my life journey, what they, how they can help me. And it, you know, it's different when I'm starting my paper route. It's different when I'm going to college. It's different when I'm starting my first job. It's different when I'm getting married and kids and mortgages. It's different when the kids are going to college. And the financial institution has all these instruments they can help with, but they just, because more things are digital, they don't see me in the branch. So they don't know where I am in my life journey, but they can kind of infer it now with all these behavior and traits. And so it's, it's a, when you think about trying to put all that data together, add all the machine learning on top and try to pop it real time into user experience as they're navigating the app, that's pretty tricky stuff. And we have a local, local group here. Molecular that has these kind of crazy uh, databases that let them operate at that kind of scale. So the, the on the blockchain encoding obfuscation data security angle, that that company is called Alter, and that's part of our brand called TrustView. Uh, and then our dynamic personalization that is going to be revolutionary. Part of that underpinnings is a company named Molecular. I could talk about this for another hour, but we're we're pretty much out of time here, so. Final, final question for you, Lou. If you could go back, you know, five, 10 years at a time, what, what advice would you give your younger self? You know, that's great. I'll date myself when I say this, but I really have more confidence that your efforts and your energy are going to result in goodness. And I think at times when you're working late at night and you've burned another weekend and you've missed another kid's baseball game and and you're doing your anniversary by phone call because you're traveling and you've made some real sacrifices that I think in retrospect, you can always go, well, you shouldn't have done that. And, and certainly my fourth child, I'm much more present in his day than I was for my first child. And so it's easy to be retrospective like that. I think at the end of the day, though, the anxiety that you put on yourself when the gratification isn't quite as immediate for these things and realizing that these are journeys and they take a little time. And if you just have the resilience to defer gratification and keep doing the right thing and the good things will come and, and karma is a funny way that it works out, but it will work out. And so not be so hard on yourself that you're, you're not seeing the results of some of this effort in such a quick time frame. Some of this is a longer horizon. And to really find some self-happiness and gratitude and thankfulness around just being able to do good work and good work will result in good things for you down the road. And, 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 you know, cut yourself some slack on that. that, that there's so many things beyond your control, but you can do your good best work. You can do good work. And if you just keep doing that, you'll be fine. Lou, thank you so much for your time this morning. We really appreciate you having me on. 
Well, it, it's an honor. I know you get to see some people at the top of their game. So I just appreciate being here, Dave, and, and spending some time with you. Thank you, too. It's super cool, man. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'll, we'll check you out next week. Cheers. And we're hiring. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.